Andrew Womack Ministries presents the 2007 Fort Worth Gospel Truth Seminar. We pray that the Word of God will come alive in your heart as you listen to this session. I want to share some scriptures with you out of Colossians. I don't have time to go back and summarize everything that I've been teaching, but I've been talking primarily about how the authority of of God has been passed on to the believers. We tried to strip and expose Satan as being a person that has uh, been misrepresented to us primarily by religion. It has attributed powers to him that I don't believe that he has. Satan can't do anything to us without our consent and cooperation. And so we stripped Satan and exposed him. I think this has really helped people. We talked about how that even God himself wouldn't violate the authority that he's given the human race, and certainly Satan couldn't do it. And so we talked about that and how that the Lord, why it took 4,000 years for Jesus to come to this earth, and how the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and how this same principle operates in the life of a believer, how we conceive miracles. And instead, most people try and go ask God just to give them a miracle supernaturally. That's really about as silly once you understand the principles as a woman who just prays for a baby but never has a physical relationship with a man. Children have to be conceived. Miracles should be conceived. And because of the grace of God, God does have people with a gift of miracles that can come along and help you temporarily if you're in a crisis and just have to have a miracle at that moment. But that's like adoption or something. You know, you can have a child by adopting it from someone else. But the way that God engineered it to be is that if you just get healthy and receive from God, you can have your own child. Amen. God wants us to conceive miracles and learn how to walk in the supernatural power of God. And anyway, I thought that was really good. People received. I think it helps them to understand. This morning we were talking from Mark chapter 11 about how the Lord gave us authority and instead of us asking God to heal and to move and to do things, we need to recognize God put that authority on the inside of us and we need to use it and speak to our problems. Instead of talking to God about our problems, we need to take that authority and use it. So anyway, that's the background of what we've talked about. Hopefully this right here in Colossians chapter 2 will kind of summarize this and There's still a lot of things to say about it, but I think that this will really be a blessing to you. In the first part of Colossians chapter 2, the scripture, did I say Ephesians? Colossians, all right. Colossians chapter 2, the first verse, he says, I would that you knew what great conflict I have for you and for them that at Laodicea and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. This is talking about that Paul didn't preach directly to these people. Actually, this church in Colossae, uh, most people suspect that it was a man named uh, Epaphroditus, I think is how you say his name. But he was in uh, Ephesus when Paul ministered there for two years, and he took the gospel back to Colossae. And so these were like the grandchildren of Paul, not direct converts. And he had heard about them. And uh, he's saying, for those of you that haven't heard me personally, I have a great conflict, a great desire in my heart that you would understand and get the riches of the full assurance and understanding of the acknowledgement of the mystery. Man, I could spend a lot of time talking about this, but basically he's praying for them. And the thing that he's praying is that they would just get a revelation of what they have in Christ. 
You know, today, most people, if you were to pray for people that you've heard about that they have faith in the Lord, but you are concerned about are they going to go on and be mature and be stable, most people today would say, oh, we just pray that God would pour out His Spirit. We pray that God would touch you, that God would do a new thing, that God would move in your life. That's the way that most Christians today pray for other people. Paul prayed that you would get a revelation of what he's already done. Really, the way to get people set free isn't to pray, oh, God, touch this person as if God would leave them alone. If it wasn't for you, the great intercessor, God doesn't care. You have to plead with God to move. Oh, God, pour out your spirit. But rather, the way to do it is to say, Father, you love this person infinitely more than I do. We don't have to pray. You've already done everything. Oh, God, just help them to see what you've done. Open up their understanding. Give them a revelation. That's what he's praying. And then he says in verse 3, because all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in him. And if you begin to really understand what you have in Christ, you know what? It'll help you to discern error. I've talked to a number of people over at the hotel this week who have told me that they got hold of these truths, begin to find out who they are and what God had done, and all of a sudden it's like scales fell from their eyes and they realized that they hadn't been told the truth. And immediately they can discern error once you hear the truth and once you start realizing who you are and what God has done. And so this is the approach that Paul is taking right here. And then he says in verse 6, he says, uh, As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him. In other words, how did you get saved? Was it by your own works or performance? Or was it just by putting faith in a Savior? Was it something that God did for you or did you save yourself? And the obvious answer is that it was the grace of God that saved you and you put faith in that. And he says that's the way you ought to continue to walk. But many people fall back into thinking, now that I'm saved, I've got to do something to keep God appeased and pleased with all of my performance. You didn't get saved because you were the, you know, the most um, uh, greatest candidate that was available. You got saved in spite of who you are, not because of who you are. And it's the same way that you relate to God. And then verse 7 says... That you need to be rooted and built up and established in the faith, abounding therein with thanksgiving as you have been taught. Man, that is one great scripture. I've preached on that a lot. I'm really trying to work on down in this chapter, but it's hard for me to do. Look at verse 8. It says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of man, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. The word spoil here isn't talking about like meat spoils or fruit spoils, but this is talking about like spoils of war. Beware that somebody conquer you, overcome. Matter of fact, the very word beware is a military term talking about be on your guard, like uh, be ready because you've got an enemy out there going about seeking whom he may devour. So don't let this enemy come in and conquer you and strip you and take from you. The thing. See, it's not a matter of getting God to give you anything. If you've been born again, you're already complete. It says that down here in verse 9. We'll be getting to that in a minute. You're already complete. God's already given you everything. You don't need God to give you something. What you've got to do is be on your guard and not let Satan come in through deceit and strip you of what God has already given you. You don't need to pray God for more. What you need to pray is to be on guard against the deception, the lies of the devil that is trying to steal from you. So he says, beware, be on your guard, lest any man spoil you. And notice how they spoil you. 
through philosophy. I've got six teachings on this verse. Six one and a half hour teachings that are based on this verse. I haven't got time to go through it, but I've got a teaching set out here entitled Christian Philosophy. And I tell you, it's really important. You need to understand Satan doesn't come against you trying to overpower you or do something. I refer back to Genesis chapter 3. He used the most subtle animal to tempt Adam and Eve because he had zero power to force them to do anything. Satan's only power is deception. It is deception is the only way that Satan can get an advantage of you. And that's why you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Because once you know the truth, deception has no power over you. Deception, only power it has is if you don't know the truth, if it can deceive you. The worst part about deception is that it's deceiving, amen? And once you know the truth, it's not deceiving anymore. And so the way Satan comes against you is through philosophy, which is talking about a system of thought. We use the word philosophy to refer to, you know, Eastern religions and all of those kind of things. And, and it's, it's uh, true that that is a philosophy, but philosophy is talking about a system of thought, a paradigm, a way of thinking. You have a philosophy. You may not call it that, but that's what it's talking about. You have a way of thinking. Being a pessimist is a way of thinking. Being an optimist is a way of thinking. You, you evaluate everything that comes at you through a paradigm, through a mindset, through a worldview is what this is talking about. And this is how Satan strips you. It's not through overpowering you. It's not because some demon jumped on you. The only way Satan can have any control in your life is if you let him in through the way you think. Boy, that is one powerful verse right there. And I'd love to preach on that. I just nearly did. But let's go on. In verse 9, it says, For in Him, talking about in Jesus, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Everything that God has, He put in Jesus. Jesus was the fullness, fullness of God. And this word in the Greek, if you look it up, it means to cram full like a net. Not just to fill something up, but to fill it up, shake it down, put it together and just cram it into literally you can't get anything else in there. Everything that God is was in Jesus. So much so that Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus is the express image of his person and the brightness of his image. Jesus is, the fullness of the Godhead is in Jesus. And in verse 10, and you are complete in him. In the same way that the fullness of the Godhead is in Jesus, you are in Jesus. And now the fullness of the Godhead is in you. Boy, that is un, that's nearly unbelievable. You have to receive this by revelation. It's hard when you're looking in the mirror in someone who's got zits and gray hairs and no hair and all this stuff to think that this is, this is God. This is everything that God's got. It's not in your physical flesh, but inside of you in your spirit realm, you are identical to Jesus. As Jesus is, so are you in this world. Man, if you don't have a revelation of that, you need to get my teaching on spirit, soul, and body out here. I tell you, that would revolutionize your life if you could get hold of those truths. So you are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. In verse 11, in whom also after you were, in whom also you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. This isn't talking about something physical, but in the spiritual realm, 
in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism. You know, these words, most Christians just disconnect right here and don't think about this because this is theological and they just don't think about it. And I wish they had more time. I'm really working to get down to some verses here, but these are great truths. You have been buried. That means you are dead. Most people think, well, I'm not dead. I'm alive. I can feel it. In your spirit realm, at one time you were dead. It says in Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians and Colossians are basically the exact same teaching, the same progression. Matter of fact, most people believe that they were circular letters and that this is the same author. He wrote the exact same thing, just put it in different words. And in Ephesians, it really amplifies it on this and makes it clear. But in Ephesians chapter 2, it says you were strangers from the covenants of promise, alienated from the life of God with no hope and without God in the world. Some of you don't recognize that, but I guarantee you before you got in Christ, you were dead and didn't know it. You may have been breathing. You may have had a heart beat. But spiritually speaking, emotionally speaking, you were dead. You were dead. And now you're alive. But see, this isn't talking about just in the physical realm. It's talking about on the spiritual level. And most of us aren't really in touch with what's going on in the spirit. And so we don't realize how dead we were. We don't realize how alive we are now. But that's what these verses are talking about. Boy, we need to get this revelation that we were buried with him. It's already done. You are now dead to that old man. You are dead to sin. You know, if you could get a real revelation of that, it would change your life. I heard Kenneth Hagin give a testimony about that if he ever had a natural talent, a natural gift, it was the ability to pick a lock. He said he could pick any lock he ever saw. And before he got born again, he always was the one that when they wanted to break in and steal something, his friends would come get him and he would pick whatever lock they had. He got born again and he got the revelation that he was a new person. And they came to him, I think it was the next day or just right after he got born again. And they wanted to go pick a lock and they asked him to pick a lock. And he said, I can't do it. And they said, what do you mean you can't do it? You can always pick any lock. And he says, I'm a new person. And he had a revelation that he was dead, that he had become a new person. And he said he just lost that ability. Would to God that every one of us could recognize that we are now dead and that that old man is gone and that we don't live that way anymore. Man, that is, this is wonderful revelation. You are buried with him by baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God that hath raised him from the dead. You aren't only dead to sin and dead to failure and dead to defeat, but you are now risen with Christ and you are alive unto God. In the same way that most of us don't realize how dead we were and how dead we are to sin now, most of us don't have a real revelation that we are risen with Him. Boy, we could preach on all of these things for a long time. In verse 13, and you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened. The word quickened means to make alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Man, I could minister on this for a few days. He forgave us all trespasses. All. 
Did you know that most of the church says, well, that means all up until the time that you confessed your sins and got born again. But then every time you sin after you're born again, you got to get that sin under the blood and reconfess. If I had time, I could teach you out of Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, verse 15, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 and 2 and 10 and 14 and Hebrews 12, 23, that all of your sins, past, present and future tense sins have been forgiven. Your sin was obliterated from beginning to end. And after you're born again, even when you sin, it was already forgiven. It's all been forgiven. You were forgiven of all sin. All of your sin has been taken care of. Does that mean that you don't confess it or turn from it? No, because there's not only God to deal with in sin. Satan takes an advantage of sin. And so when you sin, you better turn from it and turn back to the Lord and and agree with him that, Father, I'm wrong and I renounce this and turn from it. If you don't do that, Satan will gain an inroad into your life. And you don't want that. And so... Yes, you still turn from sin, but it, it is wonderful news to think that, God, you knew I was going to do this when I accepted you, and this didn't turn you away from me. It didn't change my right standing with you. You love me. You've already forgiven me, and I've already been forgiven of all trespasses. Man, that is a wonderful truth. And then look at this in verse 14. It says, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances which was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. What is this handwriting of ordinances? The Old Testament law. And some people will say, well, this isn't talking about all of the law. It's talking about the ceremonial law, the sacrifices, the ceremonial days, the feast days, those kind of things. But the Ten Commandments... Man, you still got to live by those. Well, there still is benefit of knowing what is right and wrong. I'm not saying that we just trash the Ten Commandments, but I'm saying you don't live by them anymore. And to prove that, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 7 says, The ministration of death, written and engraven in stones, if that was glorious, so that the children of Israel couldn't even stand to look at that glory, which glory was to be done away What was written in stone? Not just the ceremonial law, not just all of the rituals about the clothes that you wore and the type of food that you ate and things like this. The Ten Commandments were written and engraven in stones and it says that was to pass away. The law is not talking about just the ceremonial law, it's talking about the law. The law, the handwriting of ordinances, which was contrary to us. The law was good. The problem was we weren't good. And so the law actually brought condemnation. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 7, it was a ministration of death. Verse 9, it was a ministration of condemnation. Romans 3, 19, the law made uh, made us have a knowledge of sin, made us guilty before God. Romans chapter 7, it made sin revive. It made us lust for things. 1 Corinthians 15, 56, the law strengthened sin. Man, there's a lot of powerful things here. But he took this law that was contrary to us out of the way and nailed it to the cross. Jesus fulfilled the law. He didn't come to destroy the law. He fulfilled it. He satisfied its demands. He lived by the law. He fulfilled it by living a perfect, holy life. 
And in verse 15, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. The word spoiled here again is just like in verse 8. This isn't talking about fruit spoiling. This is talking about spoiling in the sense that you defeat an enemy and once you kill him, you go in and strip him of everything of value. Everything that he has that is worth, you strip him and take it away and you take the spoils of battle. Jesus conquered Satan. Jesus totally defeated Satan and he stripped him and spoiled him. You know, if your enemy wasn't defeated, you couldn't spoil him. You couldn't strip him. You couldn't take his armor. You couldn't take all of his garments. You couldn't take the things. If he was alive, he'd fight you for those things. If you take the spoil, that means that you have beat the enemy. Jesus beat the enemy and spoiled principalities and powers. Talking about demonic things. Ephesians chapter 6 says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers. This is talking about demonic spirits, spiritual wickedness in high places. He spoiled principalities and powers, and yet there's people today who believe that principalities and powers are still exerting all of their power and doing these things, and they'll have spiritual warfare conferences where they've got to overcome the principalities and powers over a city. How do you reconcile that with the fact that he's already spoiled them? I said this earlier, but the definition of warfare is a conflict between two undefeated foes. When you say that you are in warfare with the devil, you have unjustly credited him with more power than what he has. He is a defeated foe. He's already been spoiled. He doesn't have the power to do this. All Satan is doing is deceiving people. And if you know the truth, you don't have to wrestle with a defeated foe. Amen. He's already defeated. So he has spoiled principalities and powers, having made a show of them. This word show is the same word that we get uh, the word exhibit from. You know, when I was in high school, they made us go collect all of these bugs, you know, and you'd, you'd put them in, I don't know, you'd put some kind of a gas over them somehow or another, kill them, and then you'd put them on poster boards, stick a pin through them, and ride underneath what their scientific name is. Did any of y'all have to do that? So anyway, we did this, and you'd catch these bugs, and you'd do this thing, and you'd make an exhibit of them, and you'd impale them, stick something right through them. And this is the way I see it. It says that he made a show of them, demonic powers, I see Satan and all of his demons impaled on the cross, just hanging there with the spike right through him, amen. Nailed to the cross, amen. Why in the world would you be afraid of a bug that's already been killed and made a specimen putting in an exhibit? Man, Satan has been defeated is what this saying. He's been made a show of openly. And look at this, it says triumphing over them in it. If you go into the Greek word that is used here, this is, a, this is a word that referred to what the Romans called a triumphant procession. It's a military term. And after the Romans would go out and fight an enemy, what they would do is take this conquered foe and they would take the general or the king or the person that was highest in rank and they would strip them naked You know, there's some people that when they wear their kingly garments or their armor or whatever, it's imposing and it gives them a, it make, it portrays this 
sense of they're somebody special or important. But you know what? When you, it doesn't matter who they are. You strip them naked, naked and they just aren't that impressive. Amen. <laughs> it just makes them look like everybody else. It, it just, I remember when we were in the army and we got drafted and they sent us to the Athes building in Dallas. And the day that they drafted us, there was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of guys that they just stripped us totally naked. And we spent three or four hours walking around that building up and down the staircases to different floors, getting poked and prodded. And you know what? You couldn't tell who was the banker, who was this or that. When you're naked, you just look naked. Nobody was impressed. You, you, you know, you just... It just takes you down to the basis element. You just, you're different when you're naked. So they would take this, they would take this enemy and they would strip them naked and totally humiliate them. They would cut their thumbs off, both thumbs, and they'd cut their big toe off on both feet. The reason so that they could never again grab a sword and fight so that they could never again run and pursue anybody. They would strip them naked, cut their thumbs and their big toes off, tie them to a horse or to a chariot and drag them through the street in a parade so that they could show all of the Roman citizens that this person who's terrorized you and that you've been afraid of, that maybe they would come in and conquer you. Look at this person. If they could do anything, they would have never have let us strip them. They never would have let us cut their thumbs and their toes off. They wouldn't be drugged through the street. They would have a parade to show everybody that this person who's terrorized you will never terrorize you again. That's what a triumphant procession was in the Romans. And you know what? This is saying that Jesus did this to the devil. He spoiled him. He stripped him of everything, took his clothes off. He's defanged him. He does, all he is is as a roaring lion. He couldn't bite you. All he could do is gum you. Just gum you. Just with the big mouth, tell you all of these things and lie to you. But the truth is he's been defanged. He's been declawed. He's got his thumbs cut off, his big toes cut off. He can't do anything. All he is is mouth. And there has been a parade through the Bible to show you that Satan has been defeated. Satan has been defeated. That's this triumphant procession. But you know what the problem is? The body of Christ missed the parade. The body of Christ is the one that is portraying Satan as this formidable foe and that, boy, you better pray and you better fast and you better do all of these things. You know, I, when we were pastoring in Childress, Texas, we had uh, some people contact me and they had heard that we had seen some miraculous things happen and pe demons had been cast out. And so they told me about this woman who had Satan physically walk in and sit in one of her chairs and he came and visited her and was tormenting this woman and he gave a date and on such and such a date she'd be completely reprobate and he would take possession of her. And <clears throat> Anyway, it was a bad situation. This woman was just being terrorized by these demonic things and they wanted me to pray for her. So I said, sure, bring her over. And they said, but this is really bad. And I said, well, I believe we can deal with it. And they said, but no, this is really bad. This is strong. And they just kept giving me more and more information. And finally, they wouldn't let me pray for her unless I fasted all week long. So I fasted for seven days. 
And they brought this woman on, and this woman was just bananas. This woman was in bad shape and, and uh, I mean, was in serious, serious problem, terrified. And so I started talking to her, and through the gifts of the Spirit and through conversing with her, the Lord showed me that she had been under this Pentecostal doctrine that if you don't witness to a person, their blood is going to be on your hands. And she didn't witness to a neighbor who got killed in a car accident and she had been tormenting herself that she was unworthy and that because of this, God had forsaken her. And in this weakened state where she felt unworthy to draw on God's power, Satan had manifested himself to her and had started telling these things. And I don't doubt that she was seeing demons and that demons were walking into her house. And because of it, she was just powerless to do anything. And she had called out to God for help, but she had no confidence that he would move because she wasn't worthy of it. She knew she deserved Everything she was getting. And the Lord showed me this and showed me that she was tormenting herself. So I took the word of God and explained to her that all of her sins were forgiven and that God didn't move in her life based on performance and that God loved her unconditionally. And I spent about an hour and a half sharing the word of God, encountering this condemnation and stuff that had put her in bondage. And anyway, she just got set free. And so after I'd shared with her, I said, now we'll pray with you. She says, I don't need it. And you know what? She was set free by telling her the truth. I didn't have to cast the demons out of her. You shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And this woman, when she realized, when she saw that Satan was defeated and that these were lies and deception, that power was broken. And that woman was totally set free. Never had any more of these problems. Was totally set free by just telling the truth. Now... Not every person is that receptive to the truth. And sometimes, yes, you do have to take authority and cast demons out of people. But you know, I used to do this. We used to cast lots of demons out of people. And then I found out that most people, they have a demon for a reason. And most of the time it's because they've embraced it. They've bought the lie. They are, uh, you know, you can't just cast demons out of every person because many of them want those demons. Many of them have become dependent upon that because of the lies and the deception of the devil. And so when we started, we used to cast demons out of people. We became famous here in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex in the 60s for casting demons out of people. We had a reputation. People came and... uh, I I could tell you some experiences. Man, I tell you, I've seen some wild, wild, wild things happen. I remember I I was in a church. Matter of fact, just this week I drove over to that Calvary Hill Baptist Church in uh, Mesquite on La Prada where I was the youth pastor and we were casting demons out of people. Boy, we've had some wild experiences. It was something else. And... uh, We used to have to prep people for deliverance. We would prepare them and teach them and go through this thing and have them fill out a form. You know, I never did see Jesus do any of that stuff. But we read, we read these books and we didn't know anything. We actually, the way we got started casting demons out of people, we led this girl to the Lord who was a homosexual, lesbian. She got born again, but she was more man than she was woman. And even though she'd really committed her life to the Lord, she had these demonic things in her and she was struggling. And we knew it wasn't just 
normal. We knew that it was her previous lifestyle and she had this stuff in her. So we were helping her and ministering to her. And one day she just flipped out. She didn't know who she was, didn't know where she was. She lost her mind. And we knew that if we would have let the authorities get her, they would have stuck her in a mental institution somewhere. And we knew it was just the devil. So we locked her in a room. And for seven days... We didn't know what to do, but we just sang about Jesus, sang about the blood, rebuked the devil, bound this, bound that. I remember one time I was, we were holding her on the bed and she had supernatural sleep, uh, strength. And we were holding her on the bed. She was laying on the bed and she grabbed me. I was holding this arm down and with one arm laying on the bed, she lifted me up and threw me over the bed and hit the wall on the other side. It was wild. And we kept her in there and we just beat the devil out of her. Not physically, but (laughs) spiritually. We tormented that poor girl until after seven days, some 20 something demons came out of her and she was free. And so the news began to spread and people started coming and getting delivered of demonic uh, drug addictions and be instantly free. And the News spreading. So uh, homosexual, this homosexual came and we had been prepping him for two months and we were going to cast demons out of him. And, and I was in my Baptist church service. And on a Wednesday night, this guy showed up with another homosexual. And they came and he uh, called and the usher came and got me. And I went out and saw this guy and he says, I came to get delivered. And I said, we got you scheduled for deliverance two weeks from now or whatever. <laughs> And he says, I'm getting delivered tonight. And I said, no, you aren't. Because, you know, you had to have two people to cast demons out of people. And the guy who helped me cast demons out of people wasn't there. He was gone. And so I couldn't cast these demons out by myself. And he says, I'm getting delivered. I'm not leaving this place with him. He says, you better start praying or do something because they're coming out right now. (laughs) So... This is before Jamie and I got married, so I went and got Jamie. And Jamie went into this back room with me. And I was telling this guy, I said, I can't cast these demons out of you. I said, I'm not going to do it by myself. And he just fell on the ground and started barking and wallowing and foaming at the mouth. And and we were in a corner room and it had glass on two sides. And he started taking chairs and throwing them up against the glass and doing things and Man, this other demon-possessed guy, they had these chairs stacked up about 10 high up against the wall. And I looked and he was on top of one of the chairs, <laughs> plastered against the wall, looking at all of this. And this other guy was spitting and barking and slithering like a snake. And Jamie was praying in tongues just, <laughs> just as fast as she could go. And I didn't know what to do. So we were taught that you had to ask them their name. Man, I remember one time this friend of mine, he was saying, what's your name in the name of Jesus? Tell me your name. Give me your name in Jesus' name. And the demon says, liar. And he says, are you telling me the truth? (laughs) So I said, what's your name? And this one demon named itself. And before I could even cast it out, another one named itself. And this guy was talking in different voices and, and I just felt like I was being made an absolute fool of. I didn't have a clue what I was doing. I didn't know what I was doing. And and man, I just felt like, oh God, help. 
And, you know, it was making so much noise that the usher went running into the church service and stopped the midweek service and said, Andrew's witnessing to somebody. Let's all pray. They didn't even know what was happening. And so anyway, I didn't know what to do. And all of a sudden, the scripture came to me where Jesus commanded the demons to shut up and come out. And I thought that would be good. So I just looked at this guy and I said, I command all of you to shut up and come out in the name of Jesus. And he just, boom, fell like he was dead. I went up and poked him. And I rolled him over. And he was just going, oh, thank you, Jesus. I'm free. I'm free. And I thought, man, why haven't we done this before? Why didn't we try this approach before? This was a lot better than making them throw up in a bucket and locking them in a room for seven days and all the other stuff we've done. And so anyway, I started realizing that, you know what, if a person is ready to get delivered, it doesn't take very much. These people that you have to lock in the room for seven days, it's because they aren't ready. Even Legion, the man in the Bible who had a a 6,000 demons, he ran and fell at the feet of Jesus and worshiped him. And I guarantee you that was not Satan running and falling at the feet of Jesus and worshiping him. A man who was so demon possessed, he had 6,000 demons and you could put chains on him and he could break them just like they were strands of string. A man who was that demon possessed still could run and fall at the feet of Jesus and worship him. You know what? If that's true of Legion, I guarantee you that's true of any person today. People who say, but I can't help it. I got a demon. Well, quit cooperating with it. Demons are like a leech or a fungus. You got to feed them. If you take away their food supply, they'll perish. They'll get out of you. There's reasons why Satan uh, dwells inside of people and it's because you are cooperating. It's because you through philosophy or vain deceit and traditions and doctrines of men have allowed Satan into your life and he's spoiling you and taking from you the rightful things that you have. But the truth is Satan is the one who's been spoiled. He's been made a show of, an exhibit. There has been a parade through the pages of the Bible that shows us that Satan is a defeated foe. And if you would show up at the parade, if you would just see what's happened, you don't have to be afraid of the devil. You can get to a place where Satan, he exists. And he is going about as a roaring lion, but he can't devour anybody unless you buy into his lies. The spiritual battle isn't taking place out there in the heavenly realms, us binding principalities and going back to our ancestors and repenting for what they did and going to the American Indians and repenting for what happened to them 200 years ago. Thank you for that one. That's right. I tell you what, there is so much foolishness, silliness in the body of Christ. Because they don't know the truth. And because we've got all of these demonic powers and we're coming up with excuses for why we're so ineffective. You know, I travel all over the world and it's amazing to me, but every place I go, every place I go is the occult capital of the world. Oh, this is so much demonic activity. Oh, it's so bad here. We've got gambling. We've got this. This is a resort area and people don't want God here. And they come up with all of these reasons to justify why they are ineffective. 
And they love to say that, oh, there's so much demonic stuff here. That's the reason that our church isn't growing. That's the reason people aren't being set free. That's the reason we've got all of these problems. We're always using the devil as an excuse for why things aren't working. And I admit that Satan is a factor. I believe in blaming the devil for everything we can blame him for. But the truth is, brothers and sisters, he can't do anything without your consent and cooperation. Satan has been defeated. And we need to realize there can't be 500 occult capitals in the United States. It doesn't matter what's going on. It doesn't matter what the devil's doing. You know, this friend of ours, he talks about, you know, he's making this same point. And he talks about, you know, sometimes people get to saying, can you feel the oppression? There's oppression over this place. I remember that I went into... uh, I went into Austria and Romania and Hungary and all of these places back before the Berlin Wall came down. And when we drove through Checkpoint Charlie into East Berlin, I had this woman with us that was an intercessor. And she just, oh, can you feel the oppression? And then when we drove into Romania, man, oh, it's worse. And she just was praying in tongues and so burdened and depressed. And I was making jokes. We were having a great time. We were on a roll. We were telling jokes. We were praising God. And this woman was so offended that we weren't sensitive to all of this kind of stuff. And she got mad and she said some things about it. And then we had services and I'd get up and preach and we'd see miracles happen and people get set free. And we'd just be laughing on the way in and minister and see demons cast out and people set free, laugh coming out. And after a week or so of this, this woman came to me and she says, something's wrong with either you or me. (laughs) She says, don't you feel all of this oppression? And I said, I guess I could if I was looking for it. But I said, I'm looking for Jesus and he's never leave me nor forsake me. Why should I be more in tune with what the devil's doing than I am what God is doing? A person that just is so sensitive... That they feel the devil and they feel this oppression and they see a demon on every doorknob. I guarantee you, you got a problem. That is not right. Could you imagine Jesus walking into Jerusalem with his little disciples following along like 12 little ducks walking behind him? And all of a sudden he says, stop. They say, what's the matter? And he says, the devil's in Jerusalem. I feel the, can you feel the oppression? Can you feel this? You know, the Bible says that Satan showed up at the Last Supper and entered into Judas. Satan was at the Last Supper. This doesn't fit people's theology. His church that I grew up in, they used to plead the blood. And they would put the blood over the threshold and over all of the doors and over all of the windows. And that one of their favorite sayings was that the devil can't get in here. If he could come in here, he'd have to go through the blood. He'd have to be a saved devil. So they believed that when people came in, the demons had to stay outside and people could get set free. You know what? If that could, well, it doesn't work. But if it could work and we pled the blood and no demons could get in here, there wouldn't be near as many people in this auditorium. Today. That's a true statement. You don't have to be totally demon-possessed. Just be discouraged. Did you know discouragement and depression? I guarantee you that's demonic. 
There are demons hovering around you when you're depressed and discouraged. Many sicknesses are demonic. Jesus cast demons out of people to affect physical cures. Hatred, if you've got unforgiveness in your heart, that's demonic. I guarantee you there's a lot of demons in here. Jesus didn't keep the devil away from his last supper. If he didn't keep the devil out of his church, you can't keep the devil out of your church. But he didn't fall apart like a $2 suitcase because the devil was around. I acknowledge that Satan exists, but you know what? I'm not looking for the devil. It doesn't matter. Most of us have heard this story about Smith Wigglesworth, how he was going to bed one night, and right before he blew his candle out, he saw movement at the end of his bed, and he held his candle up like this, and there was the devil standing at the foot of his bed. What would you do if you saw the devil standing at the foot of your bed? Why, most of us would go to screaming, yelling, rebuking, doing something, pray. We'd go get some help or do something. He saw the devil standing at the foot of his bed and he just goes, oh, it's you. Blew out the candle and went back to bed. (laughs) Now, you know what? If you do that because you are ignorant of the devil and because you just are trying to ignore him, that's not smart. We aren't ignorant of his devices. But once you know who you are, once you know that he's been stripped... And once you know that he can't ever do anything again, his thumbs have been cut off, his big toes have been cut off, he's been paraded through the scriptures. Once you see this, you can get to a place to where who gives a rip what the devil does. You're the one with power and authority. Satan is afraid of you. You shouldn't be afraid of the devil. You've got to face this fear that we have been taught of the devil. And you've got to recognize that it is irrational. It is not according to the Word of God. And you've got to call His bluff. And you've got to face Him. You know, I remember that we were going to start the Arlington Christian Center. And we took a house that was on the University of uh, Texas at Arlington campus. It was a big old two-story house. And I rented it. I'd already... Uh, put the money down, and we went in, started cleaning this place up, and it turned out that the, um, what do you call it, the zoning commission kicked us out because we were going to bring in dope addicts and uh, alcoholics and people like this, and we were going to put them in there, and we are going to rehabilitate them. That's what I felt like the Lord called me to do, and the city kicked me out. But anyway, when we first got this building, um, we were cleaning it up. It had been a fraternity house. Before And so we were cleaning it up. It was really trashed and we painted it and did all of this stuff. And I was, um, our prayer was having a 20, I mean, our church was having a 24 hour prayer vigil. And I uh, took like the hours between one and three or something like that. And I was up at this house over there on the campus of UTA and I was praying in that place. And You know, I don't know what went on in that fraternity house, but apparently there was a lot of junk and there were demons in there. There was things that had happened. And I was praying one or two o'clock in the morning and something jumped on me. There was nothing visible, but I was being choked and beaten and things were hitting me. And this, it wasn't a dream. I was wide awake. Something was trying to kill me and I was being choked. I was knocked to the floor and you know what I did? I got out of there as fast as I could, man. I ran out of there. I got in my car. I backed it out of the driveway and I was just about to put that thing in drive and peel out of there. 
And the Lord just spoke to me and says, there's no armor for your back. <laughs> From Ephesians chapter 6, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet. All, if you go through all those pieces of armor, there doesn't mention any armor for your back. You got to face your enemy for your armor to work. And I remember it was like three o'clock in the morning. I was sitting in the middle of this street with my hand on that gear shift. And I said, Lord, you would not want me to go back into this house with these demons. And you know, the Lord isn't going to argue with you. He just said, there's no armor for your back. And then there was nothing. God, do you want me to go back in there? There's nothing. So I pulled back into that driveway and I sat there for a long time thinking about this. And finally I said, you know what? I'm the one that has the authority. I refuse to allow Satan to run me off. I'm the one that rented this house. The devil has to leave. And I went back in there and locked that door. And I stayed in there from about 3 o'clock until 6 in the morning fighting these things and quoting scriptures. And you know what? By the time sun came up, that thing was clean and we didn't have any more problems and we beat that deal. Amen? But you sooner or later, you've got to call the devil's bluff and quit being intimidated by the devil and you've got to face him and recognize that either the word of God is true and Satan has been spoiled and there has been an exhibit made of him and there is a triumphant procession and he's defeated and greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. And you've got to believe that and you've got to face it and call his bluff and fight him. Or if you back down, then that puts just a little fear on the inside of you. You have given Satan place that he will come in and occupy that place to intimidate you. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, you're the one with victory, but we have to exercise it. We have to stand up. We have to use what God has given us. And you need to recognize that Satan doesn't have the right to do to you the things that he's doing. The only reason he can do it is because we have exalted him. We have given him more recognition than he deserves. We have backed down. We've been intimidated. I have people all of the time say things when I talk like this. They come up and they say, you shouldn't talk like that. The devil's going to hear it. Man, the devil's going to come against you. You know what? I'm not hiding from the devil. I'm not holding the fort and hoping that the devil doesn't come on. The Bible says that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. That means that we should be on the offensive. Satan should be in his stronghold hoping that his fortifications hold against us. He ought to be the one that's holed up, not us. He ought to be the one that's in retreat. We ought to be chasing him. I'm after the devil. And if the devil turns around long enough to attack me, I'll whack his head off with the word of God. Amen. We'll use the word of God. I'm not afraid of Satan coming at me. Now, I'm not ignorant in this area. I don't say things like this and then live carnally and drop my shield and just uh, expose myself to the devil. I'm not talking about doing something stupid, but I'm saying that when you're standing in the word of God, you need to recognize that greater is he that's in you than he that's in the word world. And you need to get rid of this timid spirit, this inferior spirit and recognize that the word of God is true, that you are delivered from the power of the devil. You have been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son, that Satan doesn't have any power or authority over you and you need to quit letting the devil rob from you and intimidate you and cause fear on the inside of you. 
You're the one with the authority. You need to get an attitude. You need to get mad at the devil. Boy, we need to hate the devil. Not fear the devil. You need to hate him. And I tell you, when you get angry like that, Satan is like a bully. Satan will intimidate you and he'll come and he'll talk big and he'll do all of these things. Most bullies really do not want to fight. They use intimidation. And they know that people will back down. And if you'll stand up to them, you know what? Most bullies will back down. And Satan is like that. Satan is the author of being a coward. Any negative thing came from the devil. And I guarantee you being a coward is a demonic trait. Satan is a coward at heart. And when you stand up to him and call his bluff, I guarantee you he'll fold every single time. I remember when I was going to school over here in Arlington, there was this guy who was a bully and he'd beat up people. He beat up some of my friends and he intimidated people and he came and, you know, made people give him money when he wanted to buy something in the cafeteria. And he he just was a bully and he was tough. And I forgot exactly how this happened, but he was beaten up on one of my friends and had hit him in the arm and done some things. This is in junior high. And I don't remember all of the details, but you know what? I, I, and I wasn't a real brave guy, but I just realized that if somebody didn't do something, this guy was just going to cause a lot of problems. So anyway, my friend was getting beat up on and I just stood up to him and I said, stop it. Boy, he got mad at me. And I'll do it. And I said, you can do whatever you want to. And I said, you might beat me, but I said, I'm going to fight you. I said, I refuse to allow allow you to act this way. And I stood up to him and called his bluff. And I said, do what you want to, but you're going to have to fight me. And you know what? This guy turned around and became a friend of mine. He respected me for that. And from that time on, anytime I got in trouble, the bully would come and defend me. (laughs) And he actually became like a friend of mine. You got to stand up. You got to get an attitude. You know, we're passive. We've been taught to be passive. You know, before 9-11, if an airline was hijacked, the, the thing was always don't ever aggravate them. Just get in. Let them do whatever. Let them take the plane to Havana. Let them do whatever. Just don't aggravate them. Give in. And you know, because of that, people with a box cutter overcame hundreds of people. And took planes and flew them into the World uh, Trade Center and and the Pentagon. And they came close to hitting the uh, White House. But finally they realized that this passiveness was allowing them to do it. And those people on that uh, flight, what was it, 93? They rushed those guys, overcame them, and it cost their life. But you know what? They stopped the terrorists and they possibly stopped Congress or the White House by being hit because somebody finally stood up to him. And did you know since that time, after that time, you remember the guy that had the uh, tennis shoes and had a bomb in his tennis shoes, and when they found it, man, the people overcame him. There's a different attitude. Did you know that the states that have uh, legal carry uh, states for guns have lower crime rates? Because it's a deterrent. The crooks go to some place where there's more passive people that they can overcome. I tell you what, if every person would rise up and get this attitude that, you know what, I'm I'm not going to allow people to do the things that they do. There's some people that would be hurt, yes. But you know what, you could stop this stuff. 
And you know, I don't know how to departmentalize my life. I'm just, if, if I get a revelation, it's going to be that way across the board. I don't know how to just be strong in one area and weak in another. But because of this attitude right here and because of the things that God has shown me, I've never had to physically do this. I pray I don't have to physically do it. But I've often thought that if somebody tried to steal from me, that you know what, I wouldn't sit down and just say, well, here, please don't hurt me and give them stuff. You know, when I was in the Army, I was taught how to kill a person with my bare hands. I've never had to do it. I pray I don't. I don't know if I could. But I've often thought of this. That if somebody came after my $20, I'd tell them, says, you know what? I went through Vietnam and I was taught how to kill a person with my bare hands. I may not be able to get all three of you, but which one of you wants to die to get my $20? (laughs) That's exactly what I'd do. And some of you, well, I'd never do that. That's the reason that people get by with what they do is because people are so passive. I guarantee you, if every one of us just hated evil, and if evil comes against you, I'm going to do what's right if it costs me my life. I am not going to compromise. I am not going to give in. And if everybody had that attitude, I guarantee you, a lot of these people that are doing the things that they've done, they wouldn't do it because it'd cost them too much. And Satan is like that. When you get get to the point, you know... Let me show you these verses over in Isaiah chapter 50, I believe it is. Let's look at this passage. This is a prophetic passage of Scripture. If I had time, I could show to you that this is Jesus speaking. This is quoted in the New Testament. This is Jesus speaking prophetically. It was Isaiah, but it was God speaking through him. And like I was teaching last night, all of these prophecies about what Jesus would do had to be spoken and prophesied. And this is some of those prophetic words spoken through Isaiah that were necessary to create the personality, the attitude of Jesus. These are some of the things that are spoken. So in Isaiah chapter 50, in verse 5, it says, The Lord God hath opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid my face from shame. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. If you're familiar with the crucifixion, this is an exact fulfillment of what happened on the cross. He gave his back to the rod, to the smiters. They plucked the hair from his beard. This is talking about Jesus. And this is Jesus speaking in first person. This is his attitude. This is what he was doing. And so in verse 7, it says, For the Lord God will help me, therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. He is near that justifieth me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is mine adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God will help me. Who is he that shall contend with me? Behold, they all shall wax old as a garment and as a moth shall he eat them up. You know what this is doing? Who was the one that would contend with Jesus? He said to his disciples right before his death, he says, you know, the prince of the power of the air is coming and he has nothing in me. Jesus prophesied that he was going to meet Satan face to face. And not only the crucifixion, not just the physical thing, But he was literally going to be taken to hell. It says that 
in Ephesians chapter 11 that before he ascended up into heaven, he first of all descended into the lower parts of the earth. Jesus, at his crucifixion, as bad as the crucifixion was, the worst part of it was that he literally had Satan come and Satan tried to destroy him. And that's what he was talking about. Who is the one that will come against me? And he says... Uh, who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. You know what this is doing is expressing his attitude. Where's the devil? Bring him on. You know, if it's Clint Eastwood, he says, go ahead, make my day. Man, he was committed. He was ready. Where's my adversary? Let's get it on. Come on, Satan, I'm ready. He asked if there was any way to get out of this, if there was another way to accomplish it. He didn't want to become sin. He didn't want to be separated from his father for a single minute. He didn't want to bear our shame and our guilt. But once he knew that that was the only way that this could be accomplished, he resigned himself to it. He set his face like a flint and it was like, come on, devil, I'm ready. And man, he went, he went straight ahead. He ran. It's like David and Goliath. He ran at the enemy. He yelled at him. The Philistine said, who are, who am I, a dog that they send a little boy? And he said, you're an uncircumcised Philistine talking about you don't have a covenant. I'm the one with the covenant. I'm the king. You know, it wasn't fair. It was not fair to have David fight Goliath. That Goliath never stood a chance. It was totally unfair. Goliath looked at it like, you runt. But David was the anointed king. He had the covenant. God was on his side. It was totally stacked from the beginning. Goliath never stood a chance. And David knew it and he ran at his enemy. That's the way that Jesus did. Where's my enemy? Let us take hold together. Man, he wanted to get it on. That's the attitude that you need to have. Instead of trying to avoid the devil and whispering so that the devil won't hear you. You don't want to talk too bold. The devil might test you. He might come against you. Boy, you ought to have this attitude. I hope he slows down just long enough to turn around and give me one glance. I'll cut his head off. I'll kill him. I'll destroy him. You ought to be running after the devil. You ought to be out to destroy the works of the devils, what it says in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8. For this purpose was the Son of God manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. He was out to do battle with the devil. He was against the devil. We're like a soldier put into an army, not so that we can stay in the rear area and avoid conflict the whole time that we're on duty. Man, we are out here to destroy the devil. You need to get an attitude that you're going to make the devil pay. You attack the devil. Attack sickness. Attack poverty. Attack depression and discouragement. I'm telling you, bro, I don't know how to get this across any better than what I'm doing. But you know what? The reason that we are having Satan destroy and hinder and do things is because of the passiveness in people. Because we don't know what we've got. We have glorified Satan, feel like we're powerless. And, oh, God, please help me. I can't do anything. We haven't understood that he's already done it. He's made you the head and not the tail. You need to find out who you are and get a superiority attitude. And get to where you will not tolerate the devil. You know, I've heard Pastor Bob Nichols say this, and I've plagiarized it and applied it in every situation that I've ever taught on. But, you know, Bob said that uh, as long as you can tolerate being sick, you will. 
or as long as you can tolerate being defeated, you will. And basically, that's the point. That you know what? The reason things are going the way in your life that they are are because you tolerate it. You've adjusted. You can live with it. When you get to the place that I won't live this way, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. I'm not going to do this. And then it's not just out of your flesh, but because you know who you are in Christ, you draw on the power of the Lord and you attack this in the name of the devil. You, Satan will flee from you if you resist him. If Satan hadn't fled, you hadn't resisted him. Was that too complicated? Anybody miss that? If Satan hadn't fled, you haven't resisted because the Bible gives you a promise. Submit yourselves therefore unto God, James 4, 7. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. He will flee from you. He will flee from you. If he hadn't fled from you, you didn't resist. Or you were in the process of resisting. Sometimes it takes some effort. But I'm telling you that if you would get sick and tired of being sick and tired, if you would quit putting up with it, if you would stir yourself up, Satan will flee. If you don't stir yourself up, you're going to sink to the bottom. Amen. You need to stir yourself up. You need to keep yourself agitated. You know, I think I use this verse advertising one of the tape sets, but Ephesians 4:29 says, "Be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath." That's verse 28, I guess. And verse 29 says, "Neither give place to the devil." The way that that's interpreted is that God knows we're just human. We're going to get mad. So you're okay to get mad for a brief period of time. But make sure you get it confessed every night before you go to bed. Boy, that's not what that's saying. That's not what that's talking about. The Lord didn't give permission for anger during daylight, but not during night. This isn't condoning you having a flesh flash and getting mad and saying and doing things. This is saying that there is a righteous anger. Be angry and sin not. Be angry without it being sin. There is a type of sin that is not anger. There is a righteous anger. And that's what I'm talking about. Being angry at the devil. And don't ever let it go to bed. Keep it stirred up. Don't let the sun set on it. Keep that thing red hot, stirred up. Keep it alive and well. And if you don't do it, the next verse says you will give place to the devil. Passiveness is an inroad of Satan into your life. You got to get angry. You know, I've seen a lot of people healed of cancer. And this isn't a generalization. There could be differences. But one of the common traits I see among people who get healed is that they get angry. That they just will not tolerate this. They draw a line in the sand and they'll say, I'll fight this thing to the death. I refuse to get in. uh, I refuse to give in. And they get angry and they start fighting this. And people who resist it, cancer is not hard. It's not strong. Matter of fact, Pastor Bobby Ray down here, I guess he left tonight, didn't he? But Pastor Bobby Ray has been here with us praying. And Pastor Bobby Ray says that he's seen cancer spirits. And he says they're little tiny like ants. And there's just lots of them. He says that they really aren't big, they aren't strong, they're just persistent. And cancer, I've seen lots of people healed of cancer. But the biggest key is if a person 
feels powerless, if they get into pity, if they get into sorrow, if they get into grief, if they let down their guard, then cancer will grow and multiply in them. But when a person gets angry and just fights it, man, I've seen cancer flee hundreds of times and people get set free. And I actually told these three ladies came to me in one day and I told them that same thing. And I said, you've got to get angry. You've got to recognize that God has given you the ability to overcome this and you've got to stir yourself up and fight cancer like the disease that it is. And I was telling them this and one woman told me, she says, that's just not who I am. I'm just not an angry person. She says, I don't get angry at anybody. And I said, not even at the devil. And she says, not even the devil. And you know what? She died. She died. And she was a great lady. She's a a nice woman. She was sweet, even to cancer. And she died. And you know what? I believe she went to be with the Lord. I'm not mad at her. But I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, we've become passive. We've been lulled into a position where, man, we don't resist. It's stuff with the terrorist attacks. We've got people that are wanting to just roll over and let's... Let's just uh, let them go and let's talk to them and everything will be all right. That's not a godly attitude. Somebody says, well, what about turning the other cheek? You know, there's a difference when you're persecuted for righteousness sake and when you're just people fighting against you in the natural realm. Jesus said this over in, I believe it's John 18. I can find the reference. But when he was before... Herod, he said, if my kingdom were of the earth, then would my servants fight. But now it's a spiritual kingdom. You can't win a spiritual battle with physical weapons. But you can't win a physical battle with spiritual weapons. It depends on whether it's physical or spiritual. If somebody comes against me for the gospel and criticize me. I've had them spit in my face. I've had them kidnap me. I've had people try and kill me. I've had lots of things happen. And you know what? When it's for the cause of the Lord, I forgive them. I turn the other cheek. But man, if you want my 20 bucks, you better be willing to fight me for that. And I believe that's a godly attitude. And some people say, well, that's just not right. You know what? I'm, one of my responsibilities is to protect my wife. And I guarantee you, I'm a nice guy. And I, again, will turn the other cheek. But you come and do something to Jamie, I would put myself in between her and you. And if, I, if it, it came to it, I'd kill a person to defend my wife. And I wouldn't have a second thought about it. Somebody said, oh, it's not godly. I believe that's very godly. I believe that's a godly attitude. And you know what? Some people can't make that connection. But I'm telling you, you need to get angry. You need to recognize that you're the one with the authority and power and quit empowering the devil through your passiveness. Stand up and make some decisions and praise God. Fight for some. There's things that are worth fighting for. It's worth fighting for your health and worth fighting for the joy and the peace of the Lord. And man, you need to quit giving in and allowing the devil to run over you. And I'm saying this in love, but you are the one who is allowing the devil to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus has stripped him. He's been spoiled. He's been stripped. He's been made a show of openly. There's been a parade 
And we are the ones that are allowing him to do what he's doing. You resist him and he will flee from you. Amen. And there's no exceptions. There's no exceptions. But Satan knows whether you're sincere or not. He knows if you're just resisting for five minutes and if he runs in five minutes, it'll, it'll, it, you know, you'll stand for five minutes. But if he'll wait ten minutes, you'll back down. He can perceive. He's been around for thousands of years. He's seen people come and go. And he knows what's going on on the inside of you. And so he will fight you. He'll test you. The scripture says once you're enlightened, you endure a great fight of afflictions. He'll throw everything he's got planned at you for the next year at you, trying to get you to back up. When I first got a revelation of healing, I hadn't been sick to speak of in a long time. And I started preaching healing and I was sick for six months. Satan threw everything he had at me, but I stood and I fought through that thing. And now it's been 38 years since I've been sick. I don't get sick. I don't believe in being sick. Some of you think, well, I don't believe that. Well, then it won't work for you. Amen. And you know what? I've had to fight and I've got to the place where I mean, I when I feel a cold, I get mad. I fight a cold like it's cancer. Some of you think, well, man, I just take a pill. There's nothing wrong with that, but the gospel is better than any other pill that you could take. And if you would just draw the line and say, I'm drawing the line right here, you could see total deliverance. Amen. Isn't that good? Praise the Lord. Father, we love you and we thank you for the word of God. Father, I pray that you take these things that we've talked about and that it changes our philosophy. It changes our whole approach. That we would change from being passive and weak and powerless and going to you to solicit pity. That, Father, it had changed that whole mindset to where, praise God, we recognize that we are more than a conqueror through Christ, that greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. That, Father, we would quit looking at things in just a human, natural way, and we'd see who we are in Christ, that we would get this same attitude as Jesus, like, where is my adversary? Where is he that will contend with me? And that, Father, we are willing to fight, knowing that it's worth the fight. Father, I pray and I believe that these words are going to help people to change that attitude, to stand up on the inside. And to release your power. Father, I believe that people get angry in a righteous way and that they never let this anger go to sleep. Thank you, Jesus. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. We hope that your heart has been quickened by hearing the Word of God through this message. Remember, Andrew Womack Ministries operates a helpline that you can call for prayer and information at 719-635-1111. We have a ministry website at www.awmi.net, and you can write the ministry at P.O. Box 3333, Colorado Springs, 80934. Until next time, we pray that you will reach out by faith and receive everything that is yours through God's grace.